Welcome back, Dig This listeners, to our Teutonic Twofer Part 2. This one celebrating the wonders of Nico. And Nico's recordings, for me, were impactful for me in a, in a similar way to Moondog, although Nico was imparting something vocally that Lewis Harden could not do, and she was imparting something culturally that Mr. Harden uh, wasn't capable of doing. into a more central location briefly by Andy Warhol. Because Warhol felt that the Velvet Underground required uh, this particular uh, image of beauty to be within this band. And when we look back and we listen to that remarkable recording, The Velvet Underground and Nico, we're able to hear John Cale's influence, and Cale is another musician who one can make the case has moondog inclinations. Yeah, I, I agree with you, and I think that is a uh, connective tissue. Um, he was in The Velvet Underground, and then he produced, I think... How many of Nico's albums? I know that, that he produced at least one, but... No, I think he did more than that, but uh, the Marble Index was the first one. And that's the one that comes to mind because, well, we you've got the Velvet Underground in Nico in 1967. Then in 1967, they attempt to reposition Nico's imagery with an album called Chelsea Girl. Which was produced by our man Tom Wilson. The great Tom Wilson, who also produced The Velvet Underground and Nico. But somehow I think he got got the idea wrong with Chelsea Girl. I think some of it he had gotten right because her, her cover version of Dylan's I'll Keep It With Mine is considered uh, a wonderful interpretation. 
as an overall recording, ending it with the eulogy to Lenny Bruce, uh, Tim Harden, not Lewis Harden, but Tim Harden's song, uh, there was an oversaturation of what they were trying to sell her as. Well, yeah, it's all that folk, folky thing, the, folky the guitar. Thing. Yeah, it did, didn't work for her. It wasn't until she started using the harmonium, which and, was on the uh, Marble Index, and that was Kale's genius, I think, as well, um, to start having that drone sound and the weird, otherworldly, uh, classical European sound. And I know that that's what inspired my continued listening to that particular recording. There was something hypnotic about it for me. It was dreadfully depressing in many, many places, uh, particularly, and in, in this is a track that sticks in my mind to this day, uh, Frozen Warnings. Freier Hermit stumbles over the cloudy borderline. Frozen warnings close to mine, close to the frozen borderline. Frozen warnings close to mine. Yeah, it's it's haunting. It is it is incredibly haunting, and it, it is definitely taking you on a journey that uh, you have to fasten yourself for. It is not delightful, but it is very real. It is very credible, and there's something within her vocal capacity that creates this uh, this dreamlike sense. Whether it's a nightmare or whether it is an enlightenment is up to the listener. But she had this capacity for me throughout her career. Uh, she succumbed to drug addiction and was a heroin addict for well over 15 years. Something that Moondog did not succumb to. Uh, but that shaped her image and her companionship uh, as most of her relationships were around uh, were formulated with heroin addicts and of course her most important one with uh, the director Alain Delon and having a son who she introduced to heroin and yeah this is a really uh, unfortunate uh trajectory of life but uh, I want to go back just briefly to the um, the way that her career started with the Velvet Underground because you know I think it's it's really interesting she was partially deaf and because that and that would cause her to sing off key a great deal of time um, I'm sure Lou Reed was incredibly frustrated and pissed that uh, Warhol thrust her upon the group um, and uh, 
they didn't they weren't together very long no he didn't like it at all he he didn't like it at all although they had uh a relationship uh, but nico seemingly had relationships with just about everyone that she had yeah, yeah, come yeah. in contact with from jackson brown as a teenager to uh you know through through jim morrison jim morrison and through the uh through the musicians that she took on tour with her well into the uh, uh, into the eighties. Yeah, so, she she must have been a real handful. But the the thing the thing that um, that 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 is interesting, I think, is ironic. Right? She was very beautiful, and Warhol, in his commercial pop genius, saw that as, as a front person for this exploding plastic inevitable and um and i'm sure the budding genius of lou reed felt stymied and stifled but made the most of it created some really good music with her and for her and then kale taking her on to produce the um marble index in 69 suddenly now there was a full-blown artistic expression, and which which carried her through to the end of her life. Oh, absolutely! And she was in demand, although she was forced to play uh, little places. Uh, now I know you must have seen her. Yeah, yeah. The interesting, th the thing about Nico is that by the time I had the opportunity to see her. She, um, she was a figure that you were going to see, not unlike Johnny Thunders. Um, like you're, a sideshow freak? You're wondering if this person is going to expire before your eyes. Because the legend of her self-abuse uh, was, was so dramatic. So, and I think she, she uh, as an image... Uh, embraced her decay. Well, she 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 always indicated that she did not like herself as the beauty that brought her fame. Uh, that she identified more with what some refer to as the beast that she had become, and allegedly she was horrible to deal with on, on so many levels. One of those levels is the racism that she uh, that she held near and dear to her and never retracted in any way, shape, or form. Uh, right. There's a there's a anecdote from Danny Fields who was um, he was the A&R guy for uh, Electra. Is that right? And there's a great documentary on uh, Danny Fields, which is available currently. And Danny Fields, he, he used to call her on her anti-Semitism, and she would say, oh, no, 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 but that, that's not you. I'm not talking about you, exactly. Yeah, exactly. you're meanwhile, one of the good Jews. Meanwhile, she tried to gouge out the, uh, the eyes of a, uh, of a mixed-race young woman at the Chelsea Hotel, and uh, she, she had a disdain for the uh, for the the Jewish populace, and like uh, our man Moondog, um, she was 
very um, nationalistic in her Germanic roots. And um, I guess um, <laughs> it says here, during a performance in Berlin, the audience rioted after Nico performed the German national anthem, Deutschland Lied. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Including a verse omitted since 1945 yes. for association. Yes, she decided that she was going to pull out the big guns. She was going to pull out the the big guns. Yeah, yeah. But that's kind of like here. There isn't there an omitted stanza to the uh, to the Star Spangled Banner that nobody sings any longer because it has some severe implications. Um, yeah, right, right, right. So she's she she has this. If we were to judge everyone that we found uh, influential, we would probably have no one left. To identify with. Well, it's getting more and more uh, like that. It seems these days when um, culture is being, uh, you know, recontextualized. Yes, absolutely. And I think you have to you have to let people be who they are, speak in the voice they wish to speak in. Uh, the danger, of course, has always been that there's implications of violence and. Given the history of, uh, of of violence against Jews and given the history of violence against African Americans, uh, and as we see in in our popular culture in America right now, it can lead to some very to some severe ugliness. So I understand wanting to shut it down, uh, but it's that question: where does freedom of speech begin, and where does and how do you attack the death knell? Uh, people seemingly are very easily configured to raise their voices if they feel that they have been repressed and keeping things in for a very long period of time. Although at that particular juncture, I don't think that Nico's voice or Moondog's voice regarding the Jewish population was a necessity whatsoever. No, this was just this was just uh, just uh, icing on the cake. But the thing about um, both of these artists is they are um, difficult to embrace. Uh, in the case of Nico, she's aggressively uh, difficult to embrace, and that cut that uh, you sent me, which we got to play. Uh, her version of uh, Jim Morrison's "The End" mm -hmm. is is emblematic of that in the sense that it is brilliant in its um, dark hallway, and uh, it, it draws you in, draws you in, draws you in, even as it uh, it, it scares you. friend This is the end My only friend The end Of our elaborate plans The end Of everything that stands The end No safe 
safety, no surprise, the end. I never look into your It's frightening, and I think she interpreted this song in an ideal manner. Better than the Doors. Absolutely, Mike. Yeah, I, I, I contend that it's better than Morrison's uh, origin, and that, uh, <coughs> excuse me, that she heard and saw something in it so ghastly that even Morrison couldn't face it. Yeah, and Kale produced that one. And uh, he uh, and it features Brian Eno on synthesizer and Phil Manzanera on guitar from Roxy Music. Um, it's a uh, it's a Teutonic Titanic cut. Yes, yes. And you can make the case, given some of the musicians she, she had worked with, and uh, particularly John Cale, that you can make that Moon Dog connection because of the out-of-boundary nature uh, that she identified with. The yeah, Kale, uh, Kale must have been influenced uh, in some degree. But to, by Moondog, yes. I, I would have to think with, without a doubt. With, without a doubt. So all of the... All the indicators are there. From the Americanism of uh, Christa... Uh, Christa Popkin, I believe, is, is how her last name is pronounced, her born name. Mm-hmm. And uh, the beauty who starred in, in Fellini's La Dolce Vita, she didn't start it, but she had a one slice of film that became emblematic of, of her beauty. And uh, it's something that haunted her until she shed herself of that skin, literally. Uh, yeah, and the legacy is quite extensive. You're looking at uh, uh, Susie and the Banshees, Bauhaus, Elliot Smith, Patti Smith, Morrissey, Bjork, Henry Rollins, um, just quite extensive um, honor uh, to her throughout the decades. And there's a great documentary for those interested uh, titled Nico Icon and a new motion picture which will be coming out this year, I believe it has already been released, called Nico 88, which is somewhat formium. It follows the musical biographical formula, but the idea is to try to capture Nico in her uh, in her last couple of years of performing, the last year in particular. And uh, uh, she passed on a bike ride going to buy some marijuana told her son she's coming right back and uh, had a heart attack, hit her head uh, on the sidewalk and, and never recovered. So she, her death was not as, uh, not as she didn't go out as peacefully as Moondog went out, but they both seemingly went out on their own terms. Well, my friend, we have, we have done it. 
we have made the uh, we have made a connection that I think few would make, but I think that uh, that we've made the case for the uh, the fascinating lives of uh, Moondog and Nico intercepting and making the individual cases for Moondog and for Nico as uh, prolific influential artists. Yes, we've really kind of just honed in on the uh, continu- continuum of outsider brilliance. And we will continue to do that in future fair. So my friend, I thank you. I thank you listeners for uh, for hanging in there with us. We are greatly appreciative. Please continue to follow us and uh, we will be back soon with another episode of Dig This with the Splendid Bohemians. Thanks Good so much. Good to be with you. Good to be with you, Bill. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye.